I'm hoping tonight that we will shine some light in the, the middle of this dark season, some light on what's going on in the world and our responses to it. Uh, I'm hoping that by the end of the night we'll feel a little more connected with each other and maybe a little less alone as we navigate the complexity of this season. I'm hoping also that we'll have a bit of a encouragement to go out and be peacemakers in the world and in our own contexts. And that's not easy at the moment. It's easier here than in Gaza, for sure. But if you've been online or you have friends who disagree with you on this issue and, and opinions are very divided, it's not easy to be a peacemaker. So that's what I'm hoping. That's what I'm hoping. And I'm also hoping that uh, we'll have a really fruitful conversation. So this is what I'm going to do. I'll tell you a bit about my story, but this, this, the content I'm going to present, I've actually been uh, shared this at a couple of synagogues lately. And my, so my story is as follows, and you might say, why should we be here listening to you, Mark? Uh, some of you come to church with me. Others, Rod invited you, so you know, of course you came, because Rod invited you. But, yeah, it still begs the question, why should, why did Rod think that I might be someone that you might benefit from listening to? And my background is this. My mom was a, a refugee from Germany in 1938, uh, a Jew from Frankfurt. Uh, her parents and, and her left uh, fled via the Netherlands and ended up in a little town in, in, uh, in Swaziland. And my father was a white South African, so mum, as many German Jews were, they were highly secular, assimilated. My grandfather fought in the First World War, was decorated by the Germans. He was in, uh, in a successful medical practice in the heart of Frankfurt with a Gentile. So very secular, and mum didn't have much of a religious upbringing. And then later in life, married my father, who was a white South African, and I was born up in a village in Zambia, and then we moved to what was then Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, and then Cape Town, where I finished high school and university. And my father was a mercenary and a diamond smuggler, and generally, and my mother was a doctor, my grandfather was a doctor. I grew up in a context of a lot of chaos and a lot of heartache, but over all of that, in my growing up, and if any of you have a similar experience, you'll know what it's like. I say to sometimes say to people, I grew up in the shadow of the Shoah. So you grow up with this thing just always there in the background of your family, the Holocaust, the experience of being a refugee, of losing everything, of losing so many family members, and everything is framed by that. And then, of course, there was all the craziness in Africa as well, through the Civil War in Rhodesia, and then the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. And my family on the Jewish side were very involved in that. So that, so I started off my career in medicine. Along the path, you might say, well, I can't as a good Jewish boy like you end up as an Anglican minister. Maybe that's because I'm not a good Jewish boy. But I, I came to a place when I was a teenager where I'd always thought there was a God. And I came to a place where I had an extremely powerful encounter with God, a personal encounter with God that assured me that I was loved and that he cared for me and that he was involved in my life and that there was forgiveness available. And that coincided with coming to a view that Jesus was Israel's Messiah and the one that we were all waiting for. Now, when I share that in synagogues, when I share this around, generally, I reckon it's probably a slightly different crew to some of the Orthodox synagogues I've been in. First question out of the rank is, how can you be both a Christian and a Jew? How can you be an Anglican pastor and a Jew? And I just go, I'm just a Jew following another Jew. I try and remind all the Gentile Christians that they're following a Jew as well. Uh, we think he's not just any old Jew. He's not popular in some circles. 
but that's been life-changing for me. And actually, funnily enough, has over the years heightened my sense of Jewishness. Like it's a weird thing. Following Jesus has made me feel far more at peace with being Jewish. So that's a bit of my background. Now we can have lots of discussions afterwards. The point here for tonight is not to debate the nature of Jesus and how it all works. But someone did say to me, so Mark, what percentage of you, so it's like a very long ago, what percentage do you identify as Jewish and what percentage is Christian? On Ancestry.com, I'm 50% Ashkenazi Jew. But in terms of my identity, I identify as 100% Jewish and 100% Christian. Just go figure that right. It basically means you, and the other way I sometimes say it is my father was a notional Catholic, not a very good one, as you can tell, killing people, it's a smuggling thing. But I say I grew up with Catholic guilt and Jewish guilt. Now I'm an Anglican and there's no guilt in the Anglican church, like, it's all good. <laughs> so that's a bit of my story. I came to be thinking about this and speaking about it because on Monday after the massacre, so the massacre was on Saturday, miracle of Monday, almost before the time was dried, there was a protest planned in town hall. and. Uh, and I've been, been around the, the protesting and protests over the years. I knew they'd be chanting from the river to the sea, uh, Palestine would be free. And I knew that's a genocide chant for the end of cleansing of Israel. I knew that it's just a spirit of hate there. So I thought I'm just going to go along. I'm going to show it on the chant. I did. I took an Israeli flag along and I stood on the steps of the cathedral. So the Palestinian cathedral. And I watched this crowd grow and get angrier and angrier and angrier. And, uh, and then I heard a group of young guys start ch chanting, kill the Jews. And at that point I thought, I can't actually just stand here and watch this. I thought, I, I wanted to shine a spotlight on in, in secular Australia. We're all, we all think the best of each other. We all think we're all just going to get along. And we're all, I think I thought, 36 hours after the massacre, there were people here chanting Jews explicitly. I, I took out my ready flag and a silent and quite quick protest. I waved it around. All the cameras turned on me. All the faces turned. They started yelling at me. And a number of very angry men came and chased me out of the square and out back the street. And I hit behind some police on uh, George Street while um, this group of guys tried to find me and they police disperse them. And, and of course, I thought nothing more of it. I was very scared. And then there was, a, there was a protest down in the Opera House in Sofreo. Some of the conservative Gentiles from the city university came down and we stood on the, there's an iconic photo of some rounds of five people with Israeli flags on their backs looking at the opera house. That was us and a couple of Jewish travelers from America who joined our little group. And, and then of course the media picked up and people wanted to talk to me and then I started getting connections from the Jewish community saying, can I talk? So then I thought, okay, maybe I have something to say, maybe this is an important role to play. And what struck me as I've been to three synagogues now is how vulnerable and alone and isolated the Jewish community feels at this time. And I feel it. I could hide in a church and pretend I'm not Jewish. But I've chosen not to, because I just think we can't at this time. That's the tendency to just be, be still, be quiet, and hide. But I've just been struck at how the, and, and the thanks that I would get from people. Just thank you so much for doing this. I was just having a coffee in the city, and two, two Israeli guys came up to me and thanked me. They'd seen me on the media, recognized me, and thanked me for what I did. And I thought, I've done so little. I've done so little. So part of what I want to do tonight, and part of what I want to see happen, is a movement for peace and for solidarity between Christian folk in Australia and Jewish people, and anyone else who wants to stand for peace. And I think that would be cool if we could work together, and I'll explain why in uh, a little while. So that was my introduction, I've been for a long time. And now I have about three hours worth of material going through the history of Israel and Islam and anti-Semitism and contemporary philosophy and politics, but we'll try and move more quickly. And there'll be time, plenty of time for questions and discussions. Does that sound okay? We're all good. Any questions at this stage? Yes. Oh, my brother! Yeah, so I have a, I had a brother. <laughs> yeah, and he converted to Islam. So that was not helpful in many ways. And of course, the, the funny thing now is I, it, I really, in one crazy 
person I've had I've connected deeply personally with is with Islam, with Judaism, with Catholicism, with Protestantism, and I live here in Australia, and so I feel like I can talk about these things with a measure of lived experience, if you want to use that phrase. Yeah, thank you for reminding me. I forgot to mention he's dead now. He got himself murdered in Cape Town. So I'm also familiar with with violence within our family, so that's having also grown up in Africa. Yeah, there's a lot of trauma in the world, eh? There's just a lot of trauma, and we carry it, it carries through the generations. It's, it's messed up, man. It's messed up. So we've got to find some light, we've got to find some hope, and we've got to find some encouragement and some strength as a community. And I'm delighted that folk are here from the, the Havarim and, uh, and from elsewhere, and uh, let's get into it. Okay, the war in Gaza, so I'm going to use a mind map. There's a lot of content here. Let's see what we come up with. I've told you my story. What I want to do is have a brief overview of what I see to be the causes of the conflict. You know far more than me, so I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm not an expert, but I've read a lot about it. I want to have a bit of a think about what's happened that the left, the political left in the developed world, in the Western world, has come into this ungodly alliance with radical Islam. Mm -hmm. The queers for Palestine, chickens for kids, is just an extraordinary... Like you just go, ah! and it's really, but it's, it's worth thinking deeply about because it, it informs our culture, right? Now, if, and if you live around here in Balmain, you'll know this is a kind of left progressive area. So it's probably, it might really have discombobulated you to see the Greens and Labour left so quickly abandoning Israel and falling in behind the sort of Iranian propaganda supporting uh, uh, the Palestinians. Um, and I do think it's Iranian propaganda. But we'll get into that. Okay, so cause of the conflict. Oh, where do we start? The history of Israel. How many of you are up on the history of Israel? Ah, oh, yeah, most of you. Ah, a little bit. Okay, so I'll give you a lightning tour. We won't start in 1500 BC, as tempting as that is, because that when it started. But let's all assume for the purposes of tonight, that the, there has been a continuous Jewish presence in the land of Israel for thousands of years. They are the, they are the indigenous peoples of Israel, of the land. It's a contested land. There have also been Arabs living there for a very long time. Somehow, when you start thinking about, I've been in Israel for 400 years, I've been in there for 1,500 years, you've all been in there a heck of a long time, you have deep roots in the land. So for sure, the, the, the Jews have been there for a very long time, and been Arabs in the land for a long time, and both have deep connections to the land, for sure. But the history of Israel, let's go, we'll start at the top and we'll go down, just because some of you are Gentiles and you aren't, you, you, or others of you weren't paying attention in uh, Sunday school. <laughs> okay, so the whole modern state of Israel started in, uh, and this you can find if you want some more info, there's a website, My Jewish Learning, it's got a lot of good stuff, and I've pulled some other things in as well. First Aliyah, 1882, starts 25 to 30,000 immigrants come fleeing anti-Jewish pogroms. Some went to Israel, some went to Cape Town, some went to other parts of the world through the pogroms. 1896, Theodore Herzl writes his book, The Jewish State, and starts arguing for the creation of the Jewish state as the solution to anti-Semitism. Here he is at the first Jewish Congress in Basel, Switzerland. Isn't that cool? April 1909, Tel Aviv, the first modern Jewish city, is founded on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. This is what it looked like 11 years later. Isn't that cool? How many of you have been to Tel Aviv? Uh, 
Yeah, it's what an incredible thing, right? Out of the desert, you go, there's this amazing, gleaming, modern, secular, vibrant city. How incredible is that? It started in 1909. 1917, the Balfour Declaration. Uh, a friend of mine from uh, Melbourne, his grandfather was uh, one of the key drafters of the Balfour Declaration and was involved in the British government to uh, make that happen. He's very proud of that connection. Um, so he endorsed the establishment of the National Homeland. 1918, World War I ends. Ottoman Empire begins to break up. So the Ottomans were the Turks who controlled the region. Muslims, there was an empire. The Ottoman Empire spanned the whole region. There was no autonomous independent state in the land. It was an area of the empire. June 1920, how many of you knew that, knew that Haganah was founded? Yeah, awesome, eh? So Haganah found this independent defense force for the Jews in Palestine because the local population was so incredibly excited to have them, so welcoming, so respectful of their travels, and so keen to share the land. Right from the get-go, there was a need for self-defense. 1922, the British Mandate starts, League of Nations adopts the mandate for Palestine. 1929, before the State of Israel happens, uh, before there's any any large, substantial Zionist presence in the land, it's still only maybe 40, 50,000 people. Uh, you have the infamous Hebron massacre, where dozens of Jews uh, are killed and, and they wound scores more. And so here's a photo of uh, a funeral from the Hebron massacre in 1929. Uh, it has always been remarkably difficult for Jews and Arabs in the land to get along. Uh, and that was the case right from the start. Now there's the fifth Aliyah, another 200,000 Jews arrive coming into Israel in 1929, the early 1930s, as they start to flee Europe. There's an Arab revolt. In fact, there's quite a, quite a lot of revolting going on, Sp sporadic and ongoing violence between the arriving Jews and the existing Palestinian Arabs. And they revolt against British rule they want Arab independence and the end of Jewish immigration. In 1939, the British House of Commons approves the White Paper, which severely restricts Jewish immigration to Palestine at precisely the moment when the Nazi rise to power is prompting growing numbers of European Jews to, to seek refuge there. So if you want to understand, for those of you who aren't Jewish, why the existence of the nation state of Israel is so significant for us Jews, is because in 1939, everyone shut the doors and made it incredibly hard to get out. And as a Jew, you've always got, you're always thinking, when will the next pogrom happen? Where can we go to be safe? And established in the state of Israel, coming out of this experience of the 20th century has been incredibly significant. And the way the British treated the Jews at that time was significant. May 1949, Israel is the most gender-inclusive country in the Middle East. It's always been highly progressive, and you couldn't afford to exclude women from any role because it was all hands on deck. So here we are, in 1941, they created the Palmach, which was an elite fighting force called to protect the local Jewish community. And here are the ladies of the Palmach, just farmers working on the land and carrying rifles and trying to protect their families. And secular, socialist, progressive, inclusive. That's a pretty cool a little experiment to establish in the Middle East. But there we have it. 40, after the war, 47, the United Nations partitions the land, comes up with a plan to partition the land. Now, we now think, oh, that's a 
maybe we don't in this room, but many people think that's such a terrible idea. But what you have to realize is uh, as the empires crumbled, this was a commonly accepted solution to try and resolve ethnic tensions. You just divide the lands and separate the people so that they could basically get along. And this plan was to do exactly that in this land. Everyone knew that the Arabs and the Jews had been fighting with each other. The Arabs had been trying to expel the Jews since they started arriving back in the turn of the century. And they thought, look, we give them their own land, their own states, they'll all get along. It's what, it's what the British did in India. And that went really well, didn't it? Partition in 48, what, killed about a million people just with massive Hindu and Muslim fighting. And the fighting between the Muslims and the Hindus in India is ongoing. No one notices that. But it's, it's, it's not all peace and happiness out there, right? Anyway, uh, so the partition plan ended up in a full-blown civil war. The first siege of Jerusalem in the 20th century happened in 1947. They tried to cut off Jerusalem. There's some great stories from that time. And about 100,000 100, Jewish residents. There was a massacre. The Jews, here's the thing we need to own as Jewish people. Sin, evil is an equal opportunity offender. We all screw up, and there are evil people and evil deeds that have been done by those evil people who are Jewish and who are fighting for the state of Israel. The day of Yassin massacre was one of those. And you just go, yeah, that was terrible. 48, the state of Israel is established. Here's a picture of Ben Gurion in the Knesset, uh, with a picture of Theodore Herzl above him proclaiming. So there's Ben Gurion. Uh, the following day, Israel is invaded by the armies of the five Arab states, beginning the War of Independence. 700,000 Palestinian people flee the fighting and or are driven out by Israeli forces, and they seek refuge in Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and West Bank, and Gaza. There's been a story often told in Zionist circles that all the Arabs just listened to the Arab leaders that left, assuming they could come back, and the Israelis, us Jews, were completely without any fault in all of that. That's really not true. There was a concerted effort to forcibly remove uh, Arabs from key cities in Israel to create a defensible, sustainable state. And the Palestinians call this the Nakba, and that what do you do with that? You go, yep, the state of Israel is not unambiguously pure good. Create a modern state in the real world through as empires dissolve without pain and suffering. It wasn't a million people killed as in India. It was it was tens of thousands who were driven out of key places like Haifa and went to seek refuge. And that continues to be a problem, the Palestinian refugee problem. The only group of refugees in the world who pass their refugee status onto their descendants, which is an interesting anomaly. And if, if you ever, and it's hard to feel compassionate, it may be hard to feel compassion at the moment for Palestinians, though I, I don't find it so particularly much, but, but they have been unbelievably hard done by all the surrounding Arab countries. Uh, and they haven't helped their own cause by causing great mischief in every country where they've been hosted. Let's, let's be hosted in Jordan, and oh, let's support an uprising against the Jordanian government, and oh, let's assassinate the king of Jordan. Uh, you know, let's go to Lebanon, and let's create mayhem and havoc in Lebanon. Let's go to Kuwait. Oh, let's support Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. And then they wonder why now, tragically, no Arab surrounding Arab country wants to actually absorb and assimilate large numbers of radicalized Palestinians.
Uh, it's, a, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy, and it started way back here. There was an armistice with Egypt. Israel's admitted to the UN. The 49 after the war, major immigration waves begin. Magic carpet brings thousands of Yemenite Jews to the Jewish state. Look at them. Straight from Yemen. What isn't talked about often is that there has been an ethnic cleansing of Jewish people in the Middle East. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of us have been forced out of the Middle East in, in horrific circumstances. And uh, they, they, they arrived in Israel. So, okay. When you hear people say on the streets and in rallies, like, the settler colonial Jews should just go back to where they came from. But where did they come from? All European white settlers, colonial evil people. You go, no, like half of them are black and very brown. Where should they go? Morocco, Syria, Yemen, Iraq, Iran, Ethiopia. They're going to welcome them back. Where do you go? Where do you go? Anyway, there we go. Uh, Suez Crisis, 1956. Now, and uh, moral of the story, I never trust the British, but that's a, or the French, <laughs> yeah, or the Americans, I don't trust anyone. Uh, 1962, great story, Israel gets a nuclear reactor. I was talking with a very senior member of the Australian government of the opposition a little while ago, and they were not aware that Israel had a fully functioning nuclear deterrent capability, because no one really knows that, do they? But Israel does. Somewhere between, I've read 80 to 150, uh, warheads. So that's a significant nuclear deterrent. Anyway, uh, PLO is founded in 64. Six day war in 67 expands into what are now the occupied territories, Gaza Strip, Judea, and Samaria, depending on what you want to call it. If it weren't for the Americans, they would have taken over Damascus. They probably would have taken over Cairo as well, and you couldn't have it. If the Jews were really interested in building an empire, they, we, Israel would now extend through all of Syria and most of Egypt. And, and most of Jordan as well, maybe. Anyway, they reunify Jerusalem. There's some amazing footage and stories around that. Khartoum Resolution, Arab League goes, three no's, no peace with Israel, no negotiations, and no recognition of Israel. I found this out preparing for this. 1967 was the first West Bank settlement. So this is the problem when we think about what's going to happen, right? Is there are about 700,000 settlers who've been in their little patches now for 60 years? Can't just, what do you do with 700,000 people? I don't know if you remember the, the agony that went through Israel when they, when they withdrew from Gaza. And, and you had the Israeli police and the idea forcibly evacuating settlers from Gaza. Imagine trying to do that with 700,000 people who've been there for generations. It's, it's not easy, eh? Anyway, we won't we might get into discussion of Israeli politics. Resolution 242 is a key resolution that gets bandied around. Basically, the UN's kept saying, we've all just got to get on with each other, and Arabs, you'll get this bit of land, and Israelis, you'll get this bit of land, and then we'll all be happy. That's true on one side. The tragedy of the land, which we'll get to, is that the very existence of a, of a, of a state of Israel, of a Jewish state on that patch of land, is, is untenable within much of the Arab Muslim consciousness. The terror at the Munich Olympics, some of you might remember that. Yom Kippur War begins. Oh, you know what I found out another interesting thing? Sorry, I'm just remembering this fact. 1948, War of Independence. 
1% of the Jewish population died in that fight. It wasn't a big population, but 1%, that was an existential battle, right? And again, 73, that was a shemozel, right? And it was touch and go, and anyway, Israel won. And 75, the UN decided Zionism to form racism and racial discrimination. Entebbe rescue operation. Anyone been to Entebbe airport? Yes, yeah, yeah, it's amazing, yeah. We were there just shortly after that. We used to fly from Harare up to visit my grandparents in Switzerland. You do these hops because you couldn't fly out of Virginia, so you had to go down to South Africa, and then you pick up a more Swiss Air flight that would stop in a Tebby, someone would exchange gold and diamonds and do all other kinds of things, and then you'd hop off and fly into Europe. Uh, <laughs> there's 77 major, massive change in Israel when the Kud came into power, led by Malcolm Bacon. And uh, <coughs> what the left, I mean, I. Goldemir's, one of Goldemir's greatest disappointments, as a hard line, like they were socialists. These were European socialists who set up Israel as a socialist state. And after 48, all the, the international socialists that they had built this movement with abandoned Israel and sided with the Arabs. And eventually the Kud comes into power and the rest is history. Then. And, and then, of course, what's interesting, Reagan then gets about to come in. Camp David Accords happen. Peace, land for peace. 82, the Lebanon War begins. Israel goes in and, and occupies and establishes military presence in Lebanon. There's a massacre, the Sabra and Shatila massacre. It's important to know that wasn't carried out by the IDF. Though it does seem like Ariel Sharon and the government could have stopped it had they wanted to and had they known. I think some of you here may know more. And I think it's important, you just, when you shine light on this, you don't step away from the uncomfortable, unpleasant parts in yourself or in the world or in uh, Israel. Thousands of Ethiopian Jews are, re are, are rescued from Sudan. 87, the first intifada begins, mostly teenagers throwing stones. 81, Saddam Hussein shoots missiles at Israel. I don't know if you knew that. And, and the Israelis die of heart attacks and they can't make the gas masks work and some of them get asthma and have breathing difficulties and succumb. Then there are, here we go, Operation Solomon, where they transport over 14,000 Ethiopian Jews to Israel over the course of just 36 hours. If you want to, again, for those of you who aren't Jewish, if you want to know why the state of Israel is so important, it's because when there are Jewish people in a place like Ethiopia whose lives are being threatened, you can mobilize all the resources of the country to evacuate 40,000 people. You go, that's great. And you go, yes, but no. It's just ethnic cleansing. And why should it happen? It's a tragedy that had to happen. So they carried their peace conferences. 91, the UN decided Zionism was no longer racist. That's cool. We should just remind people of that. Zionism now actually functions. You say you're anti-Zionist if you don't want to admit that you just hate Jews. So that's all it is. It's just another trope for Jew hatred. Yeah. Yes, so Zionism is, from Theodore Herschel back in 1896, it's the idea that, that Jews need a homeland in the state of Israel in order to survive. That's the pure political, pragmatic Zionism. 
And then there's a theological Zionism, both in Christianity and in some sectors of Judaism, that say the land of Israel is always belong to Israel, and going back to it is stepping back into the promises of God for the Jews. And then, if you want to get really complicated, there are a group, there's a group of uh, ultra-Orthodox Jewish people who reject the state of Israel because they say it's not up to any human person to establish the, the, the Zion, to re-establish Israel. Only Hashem, only God can do that. So they reject that Zionism, both theological and political and pragmatic. That was the way Yeah, the ultra-Orthodox were. The other people who opposed Zionism, who were anti-Zionists, were actually a lot of highly assimilated, wealthy English Jews, mostly because they worried that if Israel existed, then they would be, it would be easier for their host countries to force them out and boot them out to Israel. Isn't that interesting? So this constant fear, if you're not Jewish, you don't know. Like it's a primal, multi-generational thing about Security, right? And uh, where can you find somewhere to live where people aren't going to try and kill you because you're Jewish? Pretty hard. So the Soviet Union breaks up in 91. Oslo Accords 93. Land for peace. Yasser Arafat. Probably the greatest blight on the Palestinian people ever. He has failed his people at almost every stage. Just a history of terrible leadership. Nothing ever came of all of this peace treaty with Jordan, Oslo II, Palestinian autonomy. Rabin gets assassinated by, he's working for peace, so the ultra nationalists assassinate him. Perez takes over, there's a wave of suicide bombing. So Shimon Perez is very popular. Many of you are probably instinctively Shimon Perez supporters, but my family are told. Go Shimon. But it's very hard to be left and moderate when you're being bombed. So what happens when you're bombed is you go to you, you tend to go to right-wing governments, so that's what happened. Suicide bombings in '96, a horrendous time, and Bibi gets into power in May '29, and Yahya gets in, and um, and has been in on and off since then. And I, it's above my pay grade to talk about Israeli politics, but it does seem to me that Israel might be better off if he just exited stage left and we could have a coalition that didn't include some of the hard-right partners. But what do I know? I live here in Roselle and I don't vote over there. And it's all very complicated. But that does seem... Anyway, I digress. Second Intifada, this time the... This time the Second Intifada, the, uh, it's not throwing stones anymore. Now it's bombs. They've been armed by, by the other Arab states and it's awful. Have any of you read or heard of Mossad Yusuf, the Green Prince, yeah, son of Hamas? So he tells, you read his story, it's a great story from the inside of growing up in the Second Intifada. And Mossad is very prominent on social media, and I just go and Google him, and he's, man, he's an interesting character. He worked for Shindet, the Israeli intelligence services, for 10 years. And his father's one of the fathers of Hamas. So very interesting way to understand the Intifada. And the very it was awful on both sides. There's so many Palestinian kids were killed. <coughs> so many Palestinians killed. It was terrible. So then the wall gets built. And then after that, there's just endless incursions into the West Bank, security barrier. We now get to where we are now, 205, Gaza withdrawal, second Lebanon war. 
27 Hamas gains complete control of Gaza, has a massive fight with the Palestinian Authority. They killed hundreds of PA people, and they have, and then there have been just endless little fights with Gaza, and it just keeps on going and going and going. And eventually, what we've worked out is that the, where we've got to is the, the old strategy of we'll contain Hamas and Gaza. Every now and again, they'll fire enough rockets. Iron Dome protects us. They'll fire rockets. We will get fed up and we'll send the troops in, knock a few heads together, blow up a few tunnels, have a bit of peace for a little while, and, and we'll just keep that. That seemed to be Netanyahu's strategy. And we thought, we'll just keep doing that and that'll keep us all safe and we'll just get through somehow. And of course, we all know that came absolutely crashing down on October the 7th. And uh, that's the history of Israel. Are there any questions about that? That was a big, some of you that may not be particularly relevant, but I think it just helps to go, you get a feel of what it's like to live in this country that's constantly being attacked and attacked. And that's attacking a bunch of people who spent our lives running away from being attacked and being attacked. Okay, I'm just gonna keep going. Uh, I wanna make the point that when we think about the cause of this conflict, it's not, just about the land. That is not true. This is a theological, religious war. It's not just about the land. The Palestinians could have had land. The Arab Muslim community have a lot of land. Israel's a tiny little bit of land. It's a t 10 million people live in Israel, 7 million Jews. It's tiny. What is it about? How many of you have studied much Islam? Okay, a few, yeah, possibly, a little bit. So again, how are we going? Oh man, still awake? I don't even know how to cover all this. I did a deep dive into anti-Semitism in Islam, mostly because of conversations with my brother and just because I think it was really important. And what I have here for you, and maybe I can send these around, I have a selection. Some, some people will say it's just about the land. Arabs don't hate the Jews. Uh, in fact, the, the rhetoric you'll sometimes see is the Arabs, while the Christians persecuted the, the Jews in, the, in Europe, the Arabs protected them and gave them a home and looked after them so well. Okay, so you, 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 you will hear that. Um, what you need to hear also is that Islam, from its inception, has woven into it a deep, theologically driven hatred of Jewish people and Christians and infidels, really anyone who's not Muslim. So here's the choice, convert to Islam, become a Muslim, or live in subjugation to Islam as a, as a dini, as a second-class citizen, and, and we have almost no rights. But there is, but Jews have a special place in Islam of, of hatred. So here's, there's a book, The Legacy of Islamic Anti-Semitism, which is a great technical tome on by a bunch of Arab and Jewish and Christian scholars on anti-Semitism. So I'll just give you a few little quotes. Uh, Surah 261, and humiliation, <clears throat> humiliation and wretchedness were stamped upon them, the Jews, and they were visited with wrath from Allah. That was because they disbelieved in Allah's revelations and slew the prophets wrongfully. That was for their disobedience and transgression. In the Arabic, the commentators will say that the visited with wrath means that the full anger of God is heaped up and piled on the Jewish people. 
and all the commentators, while this was written, originally referring to the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures that's not are full of condemnations of the misbehavior of Jewish people. They're like, oh, it's stuffing up. Come out of Egypt, and then you're wandering through the desert, and God's miraculous will be provided for you, and oh, it's better back in Egypt. Like, oh, let's go back, and yeah, we Jews can be recalcitrant and stubborn people. This verse has been read throughout Islamic history as applying to Jews today and tomorrow, that God's wrath is being piled on to Jewish people because they are fundamentally opposed to us. Um, the Quran, of course, so this is, it became a mine of anti-Jewish passages. The Hadith, so here's how Islam works. The Quran is a book that's supposedly a revelation of, there's a perfect revelation in heaven, and then he, and an angel dictated it to the prophet, and he wrote it down over a period of years to match perfectly the perfect pre-existent eternal Quran in heaven. But the Quran doesn't say, it's a, it's a weird book if you ever try and read it. It's, but what, what you then got is all the hadiths, which are the sayings about the life of the prophet. Because the true, the true Islam, to be the best possible human, is to try and, as closely as you can, follow in the footsteps of Muhammad. And so, uh, the hadiths are these massive collection of works from all the people who are around Muhammad, telling stories about how Muhammad did life. Basically, which which shoe did he put on it? Which foot first? And then you've got to do that. So your average Muslim never reads the hadiths because they're monumental. They rely on their sheikh to tell them uh, what's in there. So it's a religion that is very open to being influenced by whoever has read the hadiths and can tell you what it believes. Anyway, there we go. Let me pick up some other ones. Uh, love of the Prophet. So late 15th century. Before the establishment of the Zionist state of Israel, love of the prophet requires hatred of the Jews. al Maghili, prominent theologian in Morocco. <clears throat> a lovely Sufi theologian. Whenever a Jew is killed, it is for the benefit of Islam. And this guy is still around. Okay, this is what he says in Arabic. I'll say that in English. The Quran describes the Jews with their own particular degenerate characteristics. That is, killing the prophets of Allah, corrupting his words by putting them in the wrong places, consuming the people's wealth frivolously, refusal to distance themselves from the evil they do, and other ugly characteristics caused by their deep-rooted lasciviousness. Only a minority of the Jews keep their word. All Jews are not the same. The good ones become Muslims, the bad ones do not. The only good Jew is a Muslim Jew. Or a dead one. So this is from Muhammad Saeed Tantawi, Grand Imam of Al Azhar University, Cairo, from 1996 to the present. This is the diet that every little boy and girl in Gaza has grown up with. This is the diet that is taught to every little Arab kid across the Middle East about you and about me. And if you're not a Jew, about the Jew sitting next to you about the Jews who live in fear. It's like it's not a little thing. So here's, of course, the problem with liberalism. In Australia, we go, well, that can't possibly be true. No, that's just, oh, it's just a couple of crazy, sort of hard-right, fanatical Muslims. They don't all believe that. Here's a suggestion. Why don't we just try taking them at their word? When Muslims say that the only good Jew is a Muslim Jew or a dead Jew, let's just take them at their word. When Hamas 
write their charter straight out of this strand of anti-Semitic theology and go, our, our objection to the state of Israel is the fact that it's full of Jews and we want to kill them all, let's take them at their word. Because October 7th shows us what happens when they have the opportunity to act up their word. The, the Quran has a lot to say about the Jews. And as we started off, the first thing it says is humiliation and wretchedness are stamped on them and they, the wrath of Allah is going to be heaped on them. That's straight from the prophet's mouth. Now, let me be clear, I'm not saying that every Muslim you bump into is a vicious anti-Semite. And the only reason they're not is because they're not seriously following Muhammad. They're not a good Muslim. To be an authentically, I just think that's the truth. So my brother was not anti-Semitic at all. Like, we, we got on just fine in that regard. And there are, and I, growing up to, to, to high school, medical school in Cape Town, uh, at medical school, there was a third of the class was Jewish, a third of Gentile, Christian, South Africans, and a third were Muslims from Cape Town, colored Muslims. Everyone got on a Fast forward 30 years, you want to go, it's the nice peace-loving Muslims in Cape Town who are chasing down the Christians who are protesting in support of the Jewish people in the Jewish suburbs of Cape Town and Seapoint. It's a bunch of Christians gathered to pray for the peace of Israel, and it was the nice peace-loving Muslims who've been radicalized in Cape Town over the last 30 years who've come in and drove them out and uh, inflicted violence on them. Because what happened in Islam, there's a, there's a renewal movement in Islam that says, up until the Industrial Revolution, the Muslims could convince themselves in the Ottoman Empire that they were as good as the Westerners and maybe better. The problem was Islam and the Arab culture is incredibly insular. So they don't, I don't if you ever want an interesting thing, go and Google how many books are translated into Arabic by non-Arabic writers. It's 10 books a year in the whole Arab world. They're incredibly insular. So the problem then happens, comes the Industrial Revolution, the rest of the world just takes off, and the Arab world sits in, in splendid isolation. And then they've got to answer this question. The, the deep theological problem they have is, if I'm a Muslim, I'm promised that I'm going to be the greatest of all person, people in the world. It's a prosperity thing. We're going to be the greatest. We're going to be all conquering. We've got God's favor. Problem is, the rest of the world's richer than us, more powerful than us militarily. What the heck do we do? One answer was, from the Muslim Brotherhood, not open up and liberalize. <clears throat> there were people answering that. Not, let's all learn English and go and learn from the English like the Japanese did coming out of the Meiji Restoration. They were incredibly insolent. The Japanese went, oh dear, the world is overtaking us. We'd better do something about it. Here's an idea. Let's go and learn from the Americans and the English and bring the Industrial Revolution to Japan. The Arab answer was, let's become more rigorously faithful to our faith and then Allah will bless us. And then you marry that together with Arab, uh, pan-Arab nationalism, and you get the emergence of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was a renewal movement within Islam to try and help the Arab nations regain their glory. And the Muslim Brotherhood then, and then you can see the whole slow motion catastrophe in the Arab world from the 1930s on. The Muslim Brotherhood were very influenced by the Nazis 
as were the pan-Arab nationalists. And, and so you have this kind of Nazi ideology, Islamic anti-Semitism, and a renewal movement that said, if we get really serious about our faith, then Allah will bless us. And then you fast forward to the Iranian Revolution of 1979, and you see the movement in Saudi Arabia, in the Gulf states, in Iran, to become super uh, zealous about their faith. Uh, is uh, funded by an ideological offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood and is driven by an ideological zeal to purify Islam, to establish a global caliphate, and to uh, cleanse the Middle East of any Jewish person because the state of Israel, with all its wealth and its secularism uh, and its success, is an affront to the Muslim Arabic sensibility. So then you, you do it, you, you step out of you step out of the deep dive into Islam and you go, okay, well actually, but there's a whole lot going on geopolitically at the moment as well. This attack would not have happened were it not for um, uh, the Iranian desire for to become a regional hegemon to control the Middle East through its proxies. And it's a great and they've been planning this attack for a couple of years, but there's a tie-up between and basically they want to stop Israel and the Saudis making peace. The Saudis and the Iranians hate each other. The Saudis are on a path toward liberalization. Hard to believe, but it does seem to be the case. There's a move within the family, the royal family, towards liberalization. The Iranians hate it. Iran has all its own problems internally. And the best thing for the Middle East would be regime change in Iran. Yeah, the Saudis have funded mosques all through Africa, all through the world. I mean, they're also, I don't know, so this, I'm now approaching the absolute limit of my knowledge, so I'll declare that right now. I don't understand Saudi Arabia. I don't really, I understand Iran a bit better than the Saudis, uh, but they have funded the expansion of Sunni Islam around the world, but now they realize they actually want to contain Iran more than they want to expand the Sunni Caliphate. I think that's, that's Iran. So I think this was designed to put an end to the Abraham Accords and to stop Saudi rapprochement with Israel. Uh, Hamas's strategy, and this is because there's a tie between Russia, Iran, North Korea, and China. There's, there's, a, there's a connection across there economically and militarily. They're all, they're all working to try and put an end to the U.S. Uh, leadership in the world and go to what they call euphemistically a multipolar world, which means the strongest country in any region can beat the crap out of everyone else and steal their resources, and, uh, and that's what they want. Uh, so that's where we're heading. Um, uh, Hamas's strategy uh, is mass Palestinian casualties. They want to win the war of opinion in government, university, and streets of the West. This is what the Vietnamese did with the Tet Offensive. If those of you might have studied the Vietnam War, the Tet Offensive was militarily a complete disaster for the Vietnamese. But they won the war because it turned public opinion against the war in the Western world. And wars are won or lost not on the battlefield, but in the governments around the world. And it's the Hamas strategy, which is working, unless we can stop it working, is to turn the Western world against Israel. And you can see that happening everywhere, right? You can see the, the talking points of the Western world are all Iranian propaganda about Zionism. It's a, it's a fascinating study. So that is why they don't care. They, the more Palestinians Israel kills, the better for their strategy. The Viet Cong did not mind that in the Tet Offensive, their soldiers were massacred because they won the war by doing that. 
And that is what Hamas is hoping will happen. And that's why we're here. I have a final cause of the war, and that's Satan. I actually think, to get theological and religious here, I don't think it's possible to understand the history of the Jewish people and the history of the levels of hatred and intercommunal violence without an understanding of personal evil in the world. <clears throat> I don't think I'm a theist. I think there's a God. I think the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob rules the world today, but I think we have free will, and in this realm of free will, there is evil, and the, the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures, and the Christian scriptures tell us that Satan is real, there are evil spirits who are working the way I like to think of it is that in the, in the human heart, we can choose between good and evil. We choose evil. There's a little flame of selfishness and hatred and fear, and Satan comes along and throws a can of petrol all over that and inflames that. So I just think the levels of inflamed hatred and the spirals of incessant violence have a spiritual dimension as well that is important to think about. I don't know where you're at in terms of your own understanding of God, but I think that without understanding the theology of Islam, and then without understanding the biblical cosmology, how the world works with good and evil, and, and a good God and evil present and personal in the world, I don't think we can make adequate sense of what's happening. So that's that. And uh, my last little spiel was... <laughs> nice one. Yeah. <laughs> The left and Islam. So I wanted to say, how is it, and I'll go right, I'll go here, how is it that we, that the left have got into bed with, with Islam so quickly? And I want to introduce you to one of my least favorite authors of all time, a guy called Franz Fanon. He was an Algerian writer, writing in Paris, wrote a book in 1962 called The Wretched of the Earth, he was a psychoanalyst. He was writing in Paris. And, and Fanon, his work has been unbelievably influential. But if you heard uh, 7th of October, if any time anyone said, resistance is justified, guess who they're quoting? Franz Fanon. Coming out of the Algerian experience, as a psychoanalyst, he wrote that resistance is always justified. So look at this. In the wretched of the earth, Fanon shifts his focus to the broader political context of catchword of the day, decolonization. Anytime anyone talks about the need to decolonize anywhere, who are they quoting? Your buddy and my buddy, Franz Fanon. And he talks about the role of violence in the liberation struggle. He argues that violence is an inevitable and necessary aspect of the decolonization process. Violence serves as a cathartic force, allowing the colonized people to reclaim their agency and humanity. So that is exactly what we heard by the apologists for Hamas on October the 7th. People on the streets going, the resistance is justified. They've been so oppressed by all these in this, the world's largest open-air concentration camp. Isn't it great that they finally found their agency and they've struck back? This was from Ivy League professors, Cornell West, that disgrace of a thinker. And across the streets, 
and the universities, resistances, and, and there was, and the problem with Fanon's framing is it's, it's, it has a little bit of truth. Like you go, yes, it's great, and particularly as Aussies, you go, yeah, the underdog, yes, but no, no, it's a terrible, evil way to frame and understand the world. That violence is justified by the oppressed, and it's necessary, and it's good. So the problem with the left is they have bought, over the last 40 years, along with a bunch of other stupid ideas, like post-modernity, uh, a whole bunch of other, that's not a whole lecture, so another whole bunch of stuff. They have bought this idea that everything can be understood in this oppressor, colonizer narrative. Lydia Thorpe in Melbourne, listen to her. She has challenged the spirit of France for long. Now, I speak amongst people where 75% of us in this area, people voted in favor of the voice. The key mistake of the voice architects was they'd all been raised on France Fanon without knowing it. And they framed it in terms of overcoming colonization. And that lost 62% of Australians. When you could have just gone, mate, we've all got to get together, and the history's crap, and we did a lot of bad stuff, and a lot of evil, a lot of hurt, but now that's all in the past. Let's work together to help indigenous people. And is this the best? I think that would have been a much better help, a much more helpful framing than the colonizer, settler, oppressor, oppressed narrative, which 62% of Australians just went, no, I don't identify as an oppressor or a colonizer. Thank you very much. Because I'm not. That's France Fanon. And then it justifies any form of resistance. That's just my little analysis of how we could have done a little better as a society and the culture there if we'd known the history of the ideas. And that's what's going on. So when people say that, it's very powerful, it's embedded, and this is the, so what you've got to do when you talk to people is understand, you can't just go for the specifics, you've got to understand the whole way they are framing the discussion. Um, and there's a bunch of other stuff there, but that's the colonial settler narrative, which just doesn't work historically. It's terrible, it's evil, and that's where we're at. So what do we do now? What do we do now? We finish. You say, please, Lord, let this man stop talking. Saudi Arabia is the key. Saudis are the key to this, and the Americans. Thank God for America. Make something useful. If you're a praying person, pray that they get some decent, sane leadership. And neither of the current options are great. Um, but we need the world needs a strong, and Israel needs a strong America. And Joe Biden, for all these, what he's done has been pretty stellar at, up to this point. Putting the battle fleets up on the coast of Israel has put, stopped Hezbollah, stopped Iran. And now, how long that lasts, we don't know. We need to stand together. I think there's this unholy alliance between the radical left and Islam. And in the middle of those of us who go, no, no, we value our Western civilization. I actually believe very deeply that we are in the middle of a battle for our Western culture and our Western civilization. And we're and it's a terror and it's a it's an existential threat that our kids and our grandkids will live with the consequences if we do not win this battle. Our kids will be wearing our girl, our granddaughters will be wearing Birkins. Our great granddaughters will be genital female genital uh, mutilation if the caliphate comes to Australia. And that's the goal. Uh, and that's being assisted by the left, who are naive and thoughtless. Have any of you, have any of you heard of Ayan Hirsi Ali? Yes. 
for Infidel. Okay, so Unheard Siali has an article in uh, online, Unheard. She has become a Christian. She left Islam, had been an atheist for 20 years, and she's become a Christian, and she said, because secularism does not offer us the tools to combat Islam. So my, what I've been saying in synagogue is, and what I'll say to us, uh, this is this point here, stand together. At the heart of it is spiritual formation. You need, you, this is a spiritual battle. You need to say, where is God in all this? I don't think it's enough to be secular. Now, I don't know what that means. You, you can try. You're on the losing side. I don't think the resources are there. So if you're Jewish, what I've been saying is reconnect with your Jewishness and reconnect with God. And if you're Christian, so we, unlike Jews, we are a proselytizing religion. So the hope of the West is that the church gets off its bum and stops buying into the left colonial settler narrative and essentially secularized like so many in the Jewish community. And we go, no, this is a battle that we're in. And so we need spiritual formation of our families and of our kids to understand what's happening. And it's got to start in the home. The great strength of Judaism has been that it, it happens, the formation happens in your homes and in your synagogues and your shuls and in your churches, but it has to happen in the home. Spiritual formation, cultural renewal, got to work for the renewal of our culture. And then the last thing I'd say is we can't live in fear. It, it, I don't want you to leave this place feeling afraid. You can't. We are on the winning side. I actually fundamentally believe that we're that the, the God of the scriptures is the God of love who will triumph and evil will be done away with. Which God? <laughs> Christians, Jews, I would say, we'll get into debate after this. I think <clears throat> Christians and Jews worship the same God. I do not believe Muslims worship the same God at all. You know, Allah is just the Arabic word for God. I just think when you study my study of Islam and of the Quran, I just go, I actually don't think they're the same. It'd be nice, we like to think they're the same, but we're, I actually, and so I would say, don't take my word for it, honestly don't. And don't take, you actually have to go and do some reading in the Quran, and I'm happy to help. We can run a little study group on, are they the same? I'm really, it's a secular myth that the Muslims have propagated. Yeah, and I don't think they are the same. So there are Muslims who are uh, who are more secular and who want to live in peace. Yeah. The best thing that can happen. So in Iran, it's the women in Iran who want to overthrow the, the regime. The best thing that can happen for the Middle East is getting rid of Hamas and the radical Muslims, and you'll need the moderate Muslims to get on board with that. We're not seeing that movement, though. I'm seriously worried. I, what I actually see is an increasing radicalization of the Muslims in the West. Because we're naive. You haven't lived. It's the whole queers for Palestine thing. You haven't lived, you haven't lived in the Middle East and seen what it's like in, under a caliphate. So I'm deeply worried. Okay, so that was, we're going to finish at nine. Sorry, that went a lot longer than I thought. I just wanted to ask Adam, I don't know, I want to put you on the spot. So Adam is here with a group called Stand With Us. Um, <laughs> I just thought, it's so great to hear Adam. Tell us, from, and you're working with a lot of young people, tell us the vibe on the street that you're seeing and feeling about all of this at the moment. 
everyone. Um, I'm Adam. I think so much for having me here. It's my first time I've ever been in a church, so it's very cool. And <laughs> very, um, that's many different perspectives, and then to me, a whole group of people who are as supportive as, as the circles that I'm in touch with on a daily basis. Yeah, thank you for having me to be here. Yeah, as Mike said, I'm, I'm here as part of Stand With Us, which is an international organization that just opened up their latest office in Australia, and it's dedicated to combating anti-Semitism as well as providing non-partisan, apolitical Israel education to young adults, to those in school and high schools. And we're <laughs> very focused on the Jewish community, but we really want to expand that into non-Jewish schools as well, which we'd love to, to work with others to make that happen in, in the years ahead. And the sentiment on the ground, especially on the Jewish community, is that on the one hand, we are very scared. There, there is that fear that it's very much around, but as Mark said, we can't, be, we can't be scared. We can't be afraid because if we do, then we've let them win. And there's many initiatives, many rallies that take place that really help to build up that morale, that sense of unity that we've really been lacking, not only here, but also in Israel, which is what allowed the conflict very much to take place in the first place. But I think there is hope. And hopefully this war will be over before we know it and, and we will regain some sense of normalcy and continue this strength of unity that we've seen, not only from within, but also to continue finding those partners from, from externally, from other communities and other people from different faiths. And I think something like this is exactly one step towards that. It's amazing to be here and thank you all. It's interesting, my experience tonight has been, isn't it really hard and complicated? And I've tried hard to get like a, hundred years or a thousand years of history you, you just go so maybe i i don't i'd be very interested in, in what we do on the other side of this because what i'd like to see in this part of sydney is some of us just meeting together go what, what practically can we do to support each other and think together and advocate and it's dark days but there is light god is light so let's try and walk in the light and shine a light for each other and be that light for each other to find our way through these, these days. So um, uh, I'm going to wrap up. It's 9.06. There's a cup of tea. I'm going to hang around. We can chat. It's been lovely. I'm just going to suggest we take a moment. Uh, I would normally close in prayer. Uh, I might still do that. But I just thought, take a moment to be still. Just, just think of maybe you want to take a moment of silence for the hostages that don't come home. Maybe you want a moment of silence for the Palestinians are suffering in Gaza. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord give you shalom. Now, otherwise. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for coming.